Peter. Did you know that? Second Peter. And uh, Brother Chuck covered for us the beginning of it, of chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read it, go past it, and then let me camp out on the verses to follow for a little bit today. Lord willing, next week. Here we are, Second Peter. Uh, verse 1, Simon Peter, of course he's the author, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And here are the recipients. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. That's you too if you're a Christian. And all this by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is he? Is he God or Savior? Is he? Yeah, he's both, isn't he? All of the above. Well said. Grace and peace uh, be multiplied to you. That's not wishful thinking. You know, sometimes we say to each other, we will later, we'll say, have a good day. We mean well. Uh, but it's pretty much wishful thinking. We know, in fact, that person may have a lousy day. We would prefer for them to have a good day. So essentially we say, if I had anything to do with it, if I had any power, if I could control circumstances, and I can't do any of the above, I would hope you would have a good day. It's a nice thing. Good morning, have a good day, be well. That's not what this is, grace and peace. These are not platitudes. This is not wishful thinking. This is doctrine. This is a doctrinal declaration. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our and of Jesus our Lord. And so you see this throughout the New Testament. Paul uses this phrase often, doesn't he? Grace and peace, grace and peace. And now Peter, another apostle, uh, with the authority of an apostle, does the same thing. Grace and peace. This is not wishful thinking. This is a statement of fact. There is grace and peace, and it can be growing, increasing, multiplied, and ought to be in the life of that one whose faith is the kind, same kind as ours, the apostles, uh, based on the righteousness of God through the Savior Jesus Christ. If, if this Savior, if this is your faith in the righteousness of the Savior, Jesus Christ, then your life experience is to be one characterized by multiplying grace and peace. You have grace and peace. It's not wishful thing. This is hugely, hugely important. You cannot have peace with God apart from your faith placed in his righteousness as Savior. And you cannot have peace with God apart from the grace of God. So grace and peace, this is doctrine. See, if someone is trying to be at peace with God, but bypassing the grace of God, they will fail. You cannot establish peace with God by skipping over his provision for it. His provision for peace with him is the birth, the enfleshment of himself. The babe born in Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. It's Jesus. It's God become man. That is the gracious provision of God whereby man can have peace with God. If you skip over that on a quest for peace with God, you will fail. You can only have peace with God if you benefit from his grace first. So grace and peace is huge. 
And, and these two words encompass uh, very um, familiar words to the people of the day. The Greek-speaking people of the day would say grace, charis. From, we get the word charismatic, meaning gift or grace. They'd say charis, grace, Greek-speaking people. And then the Hebrew-speaking people of the day would say peace, shalom. So here you have both words. It's as if this is saying, for all people, Jews, Gentiles, Greek-speaking people, Hebrew-speaking people, if you have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, you will have grace and peace, and it ought to be multiplying in you. Now, according to verse 2, what is the source as you take a look at that verse, what's the source of grace and peace? Knowledge of God. Now, I'll tell you how huge that is. Everything in the Bible is written for a purpose. So Peter is writing Second Peter for a purpose, which it would be helpful to know about. For instance, in First Peter, his purpose in his first letter was to prepare Christians for opposition persecution outside of the church. But in his second letter, he has a different purpose. It's to prepare Christians for false teaching inside the church. First Peter, opposition from without. Second Peter, false teaching from within. And the primary false teaching could be called Gnosticism, spelled G-N-O, Gnosticism, but you don't pronounce the G. From a word, Greek word, gnosis, meaning knowledge. Now, the Gnostics are very prevalent in New Testament times. Many of the New Testament writers write in response to the false teaching of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism in Peter's day was not as fully developed as it will come to be after Peter, but it was still there nonetheless. And it wasn't a particular school of thought. It was a big umbrella under which a lot of false teaching could fit. The Gnostics, again, the word meaning knowledge, essentially said the way you get to know God, perhaps even be God, the way you get to overcome your nature, the way you get in touch with cosmic realities is through the accumulation of knowledge. Not just ordinary knowledge, knowledge of an esoteric kind, a kind of secret, mysterious knowledge available only to some. So not everyone is going to be able to overcome and get to a higher level of consciousness. It's the accumulation of speculative knowledge, abstraction, philosophy, and even playing around with words in the Bible. Number games. Finding words in the Bible, each which has a numerical equivalent, and trying to come up with secret meanings and so on. Interesting. It's like the Bible code books, which sadly a number of you have purchased. You're wasting your time. There are no secret meanings in the Bible. I'll tell you how you get to know the Bible. You get to know the Bible by first accepting the author of the Bible. And then he illuminates your understanding through his spirit. So there would be something called gematria, which is mystical, playing around with the numbers of the Bible, um, 
It's stuff that Madonna is into. You know, Madonna and a lot of Hollywood people, they're, they're, the Kabbalah, it's called. It's mysticism and crazy. In other words, instead of seeing the plain meaning of the text, you play games with it. Because the plain meaning doesn't get you to be like God. It's the secret underlying meanings. So the Gnostics were into the accumulation of the secret knowledge. They had no concept of a personal relationship with a Savior. So Peter is going to use the word knowledge oftentimes in Second Peter as a reaction to that false and partial knowledge. In fact, the word he uses in verse 2 for knowledge, see grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's this word in Greek, epignosis. Epi- Remember I said gnosis is behind Gnosticism. But if you attach a three-letter word, epi, E-P-I, it changes the word knowledge, and it means full knowledge. So Peter is essentially uh, reacting to the partial, incomplete knowledge of the Gnostics. And he's saying, no, you have the experience of grace and peace in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Uh, by the way, which which is it? Is it God or is it Jesus? Who could you? Uh, okay, another good answer. Uh, it's both, isn't it? And um, would would you hate me if I told you I do not understand the Trinity? I only accept the Trinity. No problem accepting it. I do not understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I know we worship one God, not three, but I don't understand how one God is three. And I'm so pleased not to understand it. Uh, uh, Because if uh, if I understood all of the marvels of Almighty God, I, I guess I would be his equal. But that would make me feel very insecure. I, I don't want to be God's equal. I want to be God's kid. And as a kid, no kid understands fully the ways of his or her parent. That would be terrifying for the child to be equal with the parent. I'm glad our father is so much bigger than our puny little brains that somehow it's no problem for him to be one and yet manifest himself in three persons fully divine, each of them. I just don't know how it works. I'm thrilled about that. There's a million other things about God I just don't understand. I just enjoy and believe. So yeah, you're right. It's right. It's the knowledge of God the Father and of Jesus uh, our Lord who is also equally God. So Peter is striking out, you see, against the Gnostics and he says they only have partial knowledge. It's crazy knowledge. It's nut, nutso knowledge. This knowledge is an experiential knowledge. It's a relational knowledge, not just cognitive accumulation of information. The Gnostics were into getting smart, so to speak. Just a lot of stuff. Uh, Philosophy, speculation, pack it in your brain. This word for knowledge means, no, no, knowing a person. It means marriage. It means being wedded uh, to Almighty God through the Son, the Lord Jesus And Peter is saying, you'll have the experience of multiplying grace and peace, not through speculative, abstract, Kabbalah, mysticism, hocus-pocus, Madonna stuff. You will have the experience of grace and peace when you have the full knowledge 
of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's relational. It's experiential. I remember uh, uh, years ago I was on a military installation and I got a phone call from a chaplain who was a, <clears throat> a rabbi, Orthodox, and there's not too many of those in the military. He said, uh, Rothberg, yeah, this is Chaplain so-and-so. Chaplain, how are you? Says I. He said, I'm, go- I'm new here. I'm going through the roster of personnel. I'm I look, uh, trying to identify the Jewish personnel. You're Jewish, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm Jewish. Good. My wife and I want to have all the Jewish personnel, he says, there's not many of us, uh, over to our home uh, to get to know each other this week. Can you come? Uh, so I remember saying, I can come, Rabbi, but I'm not entirely sure you really want me to come. <laughs> he said, why? I said, there's just something about me. Maybe if we could get together, I'd like to tell you my story. What do you mean your story? What do you see for your murderer? <laughs> he said, no, 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 nothing like that. I said, Rabbi, I'm a Jew for Jesus. I'm a Jew who believes Jesus is our Messiah. Have you heard of one such as me? I've heard of you all right. Oy vey, you're right. You will never come to my house. Boom, hangs up the phone. That's what he does. So I went back to my sausage sandwich and... No, 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 no. So <laughs> I threw that in. So, uh, so I get a call from him again a week later. Rothberg. Chaplain Wertheim, uh, hey, I spoke to some other rabbis about you, and they said I should not have hung up on you. They said I should meet with you and win you back. You're deceived. You're brainwashed. <laughs> so I want to want to get together. Okay. So we got together. And I met with him several times to study things. And uh, he was a modern-day Gnostic. He was brilliant. He knew everything and knew nothing. Degrees, shelves filled with books. I asked him one time about how do you connect with an unseen God. He said, it's metaphysical, Rothberg. It's metaphysical. He said, through the constant uh, focus of our attention on Torah, Torah is, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, we are metaphysically ushered into the atmosphere of the divine. What in the world is rabbi smoking? <laughs> That's what he was doing. No concept of sin and need for savior. No concept of a personal deity, God, personality, with mind, emotions, will. Just an abstraction. Metaphysically, and his study, I used to wonder, how could it be he's studying the same book I am, right? It's the Old Testament, that's God's word. Why, why doesn't he get it? <clears throat> because he was looking to it mystically, magically, letters, combinations, secret meanings, missing the forest for the trees. Modern-day Gnosticism. You know, all false teaching, it comes from the father of lies. It's from Satan. You know, I've got to tell you something. He's very powerful, a very powerful foe. But he doesn't come up with new stuff. It's really repackaged old stuff. 
So Gnosticism exists today. It's just repackaged. There's a major religious group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I, uh, just to save you because it's holiday season, you got to, you're too busy to send me emails. So don't. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not saying anything critical. I'm just telling you what any uh, knowledgeable Jehovah's Witness would tell you about their own belief. I'm just going to tell you. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not fully God. I, I'm, not, I'm only telling you what they will tell you, you see. So save you. I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you. So leave me alone. <laughs> Got enough trouble with Rabbi Wertheim. So, so uh, they believe Jehovah is God. See, Jehovah's witnesses. You witness to Jesus. No, no, Jehovah is God. But who is Jesus in their thinking? He's a lesser God. In fact, he's a step away from Jehovah, which makes him a lesser God. You too are a few steps away from Jehovah. You too can be gods. Did you know that? The Watchtower Society teaches you can be gods. Small g. Jehovah is God, big G. Jesus is also God, but not big G. Neither are you. Now, Jesus is a little more like God than you are because he's closer to Jehovah. You are further away. So, so they say Jesus is an emanation away from Jehovah. Here's Jehovah. Jesus emanates away. You too are an emanation from God. You emanate just a little further away from what he's like. That, folks, is modern-day Gnosticism. That's exactly what... I'll tell you why. The Gnostics in the day taught that all matter is evil. God becoming man becomes matter. The babe born in Bethlehem can be held. Matter, not spirit, not abstraction. Jesus was matter. But Gnosticism taught all matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus can't be God because God cannot be evil. Jesus is matter. All matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus can't be God. See? So uh, it rears its ugly head today just like, I mean, I'm telling you, Satan is not all that creative. You know, God is a creator. You know, Satan repackages stuff. So Second Peter fits today just like it did a couple thousand years ago. So, so, so Peter is striking out against all this, and he's saying, no, no. If you want the experience, the reality of multiplying grace and peace, it's not esoteric knowledge. It's not metaphysics. It's not occultism. It's not mysticism. It's not the accumulation of factual stuff. It's the experiential knowledge of God through the Savior, whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and who is also fully God. You can't access an unseen deity except he draw nigh. He did. It's the babe in Bethlehem. It's Christmas. It's Emmanuel. It's God who came near. You can know the unseen God, not through mind power, but through his revelation through his son. When you have knowledge of the Lord Jesus, you have epignosis. You have full knowledge. You don't have esoteric, abstract knowledge. You know what you need to know about God. No one has seen God at any time, but the Son has revealed him. That's what we're taught in John chapter 1.
You don't have to uh, speculate. And that's what Gnosticism was, speculative knowledge. I think this about God, I think that. Think what you want, but maybe you're wrong. It's just speculation. Why do you want to rely on speculation when you can have a revelation? What's revelation? God in the form of man. You could access him that way. Jesus was here, folks. He walked on earth. He had his ministry here. He grew. He experienced life. He wept. He knows human emotion. He was fully human. Here's another mystery. I believe it. I just don't get it. And fully divine. I don't know how that works. Fully human and fully divine. I just know it does. He was God in the form of man. He remained fully God, yet fully man. Oh, with one exception, no sin. That makes him the only one who could be the Savior from sin because he had none of his own. He didn't die for his sin. He died for ours. He could because he was sinless. So uh, Peter will use the word knowledge many times in this uh, book as a reaction against Gnosticism and as a protection to the people in the church who are being affected by it. So, God has done all this through Jesus. If you have true, full knowledge of God through the revelation of himself, through the Savior, your Savior, the Lord Jesus, God has done a lot. Now, what are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Because here's another thing about the Gnostics. They thought knowledge had an end in itself. Knowledge is not supposed to transform. It's just supposed to puff you up. <laughs> the Gnostics were extremely arrogant. They're like a lot of intellectuals today who accumulate knowledge not for life change as much as for one-upsmanship. <laughs> Thank God he doesn't reveal himself only to intellectuals. Thank God you don't access him by IQ you access him by surrendered, yielded heart. So in this day, the Gnostics not only accumulated knowledge for its own sake, they also weren't changed by it. They were rabble-rousers. They were out of control. <laughs> they, they, they were disruptive. They were not living proof of anything except the deadness of mere knowledge apart from the experiential knowledge of the God of all truth, the Lord Jesus. So Peter is saying two things. Number one, why do you want gnosis when you can have epignosis? Why do you want partial knowledge when you can have full knowledge? And number two, why do you want knowledge if it doesn't transform your life? Now that you have full knowledge of the Lord Jesus, you have a responsibility to live in accordance with it. So that's what he says in verse 3. Look, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Stop. The prosperity teachers would like to stop there. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. That's prosperity teaching. You have everything in Christ. You have all the material wealth you want. You just got to believe it. You have all the health you want. You have all the prosperity. But it does not say that being a Christian means we will have everything. 
There's no such promise in the Bible. It says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, notice, pertaining to life and godliness. It means this God who has enabled us to have knowledge of him, personal, experiential knowledge of him, that God, that Savior, did not just save, he has also supplied us with all that we need to live a godly life. So I'll tell you what that unbelievably wonderful verse does for us. It removes any excuse when we choose to sin. Look, life is tough, and it really could get tough around the holidays. You could um, have an accentuated sense of loneliness, of grief. We know this. Hence, as Brother Chuck mentioned, we'd love for you to come tonight. Let's minister to each other in the healing holiday hurts service. But if you're in that situation, sometimes you could say, you know, I'm hurting, I'm grieving. Enough is enough. I'm going to do something to alleviate the pain and increase some pleasure. And God, uh, you know, I've waited on you long enough to come through for me, to heal me, to comfort me. Uh, I can't wait any longer. I'm not going to. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to find a source of pleasure, which though I know is outside of your will, I believe I deserve. And there's nothing I could do about it. Well, though I, we want to sympathize with one another who grieve and who are in pain or in the midst of overwhelming life circumstances, verse 3 tells me if I sin or you sin, if I do something outside the will of God or if you do, it's sheer and utter choice. There is no excuse. Why? Because this verse tells me, the one of whom I have knowledge as Savior has also granted to me, by his divine power, everything I need with regard to living a godly life. I have everything I need to do everything he wants me to do. He tells me he wants me to be holy as he is holy. If I choose unholiness, I've done that. I've chosen unholiness. Sometimes a Christian will say, enough is enough, I deserve a break today. I'm going to drink this, I'm going to smoke that, I'm going to lend my eyes to such and such on my computer. I deserve a break today. Mm. <clears throat> and the temptation is too great. And I can't say no. And no, that's not true. If I believe in verse 3. See, by his divine power, not mine, I cannot overcome my human nature by human strength. I need outside help. So, by his divine, whose divine power? The one of whom I have knowledge, the Lord Jesus. I'm not talking about reading a book, information, Gnostic, factual stuff. I'm talking about I'm in a marriage. I'm in a covenant bond with the Lord and Savior, with Almighty God who manifested himself in the flesh, the Lord Jesus. That God has given to me by his power 
everything pertaining to life and godliness. I, as a person of God, can live the life of God. Not because I'm strong, but because he's given me divine power. When I choose to do ungodly things, I have to admit to you, I've done that very thing. I have chosen an ungodly course. You have to admit the same thing. We can't do like these famous personages we see plastered on the news with greater frequency today. We can't say, I made a mistake. No, I have to say, I rebelled against God on purpose. I chose to. I cannot say I had to, I was compelled to, I had no choice. No. As a Christian, I have to say, I chose to do what I did. I didn't have to because I have, by his divine power, everything I need to live the life he wants me to live. So that's really, 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 really good news. I didn't just meet the Lord Jesus at a point in time, say, forgive me, a sinner, come into my life, dear Savior. And that ended it. No, that began it. Sins automatically, immediately forgiven, and then a new resource, way beyond myself, divine power to live a different kind of life. The Gnostics had knowledge, but they had no power to live differently. You know, we're seeing it all the time. People in high places. I'm not looking down at anyone, neither should you. I mean, but for the grace of God, a famous athlete, you think he has everything. Oh, my goodness. But on the inside, so empty, so undeveloped. By the way, we should pray for these people, not against them. Good night. We ought to pray at the time of devastation in their lives. They find the Lord Jesus. Uh, uh, maybe a famous politician. You know, these are people that go to law school. They know they're such great orators. They speak. They're knowledgeable. They're brilliant. Ba ba boom. Their lives, they're like Gnostics. and There's no self-control. They're out of control. Me too. I would be. You too. Don't misunderstand. We're all the same, except for divine power, which has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I can live differently than that athlete, than that politician, than that. I could choose the same lifestyle, and if I do, I did it. I chose it. Can't blame it on my parents. I can't blame it on the atmosphere of the day. I can't blame it on a failed marriage. I can't, I can't. All these things contribute. Don't misunderstand. I don't want to minimize anybody's pain. I'm just saying your pain quotient doesn't give you permission to do something out of the will of God. If in spite of the pain quotient, you choose to do something outside the will of God, you chose to do it because you could say, oh God, I ache. And you could come weeping to him. He'll never tell you, dry your tears. He'll say, I'm glad you came. He invites you to. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Let me give you rest. So he'll never say, chin up, be tough, be strong. No, no, no. It says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Come to him like dust. Oh, God, I'm dust. I can't hold it together. I can't go on. You're, you're free to say all that. And then you're free to say, but you promise you'll hold on to me. You promise outside help. You promise that you wouldn't just save me from sin. You would sustain me in life. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 is that promise. 
You tell me I have divine power to enable me to have everything I need, such as it pertains to life and godliness, and I don't have a will even to live right now, let alone live a godly life. I need you. That is very legitimate. But it is not legitimate to say in the midst of pain, I'll seek ungodly pleasure to deal with it. You could do that. You do it. I do it. Come on, let's fess up. But then I have to look in the mirror and say I did it because I chose to do it. Otherwise, God lied to us in verse 3. I don't think he's a liar. If he gave us the ultimate, the Lord Jesus, every time I see a cross, go by a cross, I'm reminded of the cross. If he did not withhold the ultimate, won't he give us the lesser? If he gave us the life of his only begotten son with whom he is well pleased, won't he also give us the things pertaining to life and godliness? The answer is, let me answer it, yes. So I go back to verse 1 and 2. I share the same faith as Peter did. Faith in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. By His grace, therefore, I have peace with Him now. And it all comes from my experiential knowledge of Him, not by any good thing in me. It comes from Him. If I have that, then I also believe I have verse 3. His divine enablement so that even in the most difficult and trying of times, I could be sustained and live the godly life he wants me to live. If I have Christ, I can live the life Christ wants me to live. You see it? I need that. Lest I think it's over for me, I can't go on. No, it's not true. Through the true not true knowledge, verse 3. Verse 2 spoke of full knowledge, epignosis. Now true knowledge. The Gnostics had only partial knowledge, number one, and they didn't have true knowledge, number two. With all of these things, this divine enablement to live life on a different plane comes through the true knowledge of him who called us. Now, folks... Don't put me in a box when I say to you, if you are saved, you were called to be saved. Don't put me in a box. Oh, he's a Calvinist. Come on. I don't think John Calvin was a Calvinist, uh, the way people think of it today. So I only bring this up because this is dividing churches today. How many of the five points of Calvinism? A guy comes to me. Stuart, how many of the five do you subscribe to? How many of these five do you subscribe? (laughs) Come on. It's just such a simplistic, come on. Come on. It's another like a a test of spirituality, you know. know. Stuart, I know you don't speak in tongues, but at least do you hold to five points of Calvinism? You know, I got to, come on. We got all these badges of stuff. Leave me alone. So I don't want to be labeled, I'm not, I'm not anybody, I'm just reading the Bible. And I can't get away from what it says there. The true knowledge of him who called us. If Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, you didn't save yourself and neither did I. I didn't get up one day and say it's a good day to be saved. 
He enabled it. He called me. Now, I know that leads to questions. Well, if he elected, if he called you to be saved, does that mean he didn't elect others? I don't know about all that. Leave me alone. But I don't want all these things to get me away from what it says there. I just want to rejoice. I'm a dead person. How does a dead person respond to a living God unless the living God enables the dead person to respond? He saved me. I didn't save me. He called me. Why didn't he call the rabbi I told you about? I don't know anything about. Take it up with God, would you please? You know, let's not try to figure. It's, I don't have everything figured out. But that I don't have everything figured out. I don't want to lose uh, a sense of what's very clear here. Right. Do you know if you have true knowledge of the Lord Jesus, he called you to it? Yeah. Do you know that? Do you know why that's so important? If he called you to himself, he will give you all you need to be like him. If you saved yourself, you're okay, good. Now take care of yourself. That's the point. You didn't call out to him. He called you to him. You only responded. I know about free will and human responsibilities. That's why I say don't put me in a box. I know you have to respond to the call. How do they all work together? I don't know. I don't care. I just know they work together in the mind of God. I know at a certain point of time he called me and I had to say, yeah, yes, I know that. I don't know how that all, what comes first, what comes second. Leave me alone. Go to seminary and fight that out. I just want to look at verse 3 and enjoy the ride. Verse 3 tells me, this is such a worse verse of hope and assurance. Stuart, I called you to have true knowledge of me. Do you know me? I say, yes, Lord, I know you. What do you know about me? I know you're the way and the truth and the life. I know no man comes to the Father but by you. I know there is salvation in no other name but yours that has been given from heaven among men. I believe in that. Good, Stuart. I called you to that. And if I called you to that, I will give you divine power so that you can live the kind of life I want you to live in. That's your assurance. If I called you, I will equip you and sustain you. But how did he call us? Did he call us by a loud voice, audibly heard? Did he call us by coercion? Did he call us by threats? No, look, 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 look. True knowledge of him who called us, look, by his own glory and excellence. You know what that means? Look, look, look. Something took place in our lives. A realization came upon us at some point. For me, it was September 5th, 1973. I remember it like it was yesterday. Maybe you don't remember a date. It's not important. There was a certain point in time when you crossed over from darkness to light. If you don't know about that date, uh, the the date, don't worry about it. But if you you don't know about the experience, yeah, you should worry about it. So so, so on a particular point in time, uh, I came to know of the glory and excellence of this Jesus. Glory above, filling the universe. In fact, creating the universe in the very power of his word. Having no beginning nor any end. Winning victory over death, common to humankind. It defeats us. He defeated it. The glory of Jesus. And then his excellence, moral excellence. What is it like never to have sinned? I don't know. 
wow, he's morally excellent. What is it like to have perfectly complied, yielded to, submitted to the commandments of the Father? I don't know. The more the excellence of Je- the glory and excellence of Jesus, when compared to my sinfulness at that point in time, showed me, oh, Lord Jesus, I am not like you. I am not glorious. I have fallen from what you had for me way back in Genesis. In my the image of you in me has been marred by my own sin. I am not morally excellent. I have sinned and like it. I enjoy what you hate. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Be my Savior. That's how he called me. That's how he called you. Not by threats. Not by coercion. He surely is powerful. Not by arm twisting. No. A basis of comparison. I saw him high and lifted up. Not literally. High and lifted up. And he says, as I'm lifted up, I'll call all men to my... That happened to me. I saw his character high and lifted up, and I saw mine debased. And I thought, oh, a debt I cannot pay. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. He said, no problem. I'm the Savior. So we've been called into fellowship, into true knowledge, into full knowledge, into experiential knowledge of him. Not through speculation, not through religion, not through mind power, but through a sense of need and indebtedness. And we've been called through a realization of how great he is. He's one of a kind. He's not Mohammed. He's not Moses. He's not Buddha. Give me a doggone break. He's the only begotten son of God. There's no one like the Lord Jesus. He's the God-man. There's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Father delights in him. He's the perfect one. He has no beginning nor any end. He's coming again. <laughs> there came a point in time when we, be, we beheld his glory and his excellence and we, figuratively speaking, fell at his feet and we said, fill me, oh glorious and most excellent one, so that I could be saved. And he said, that's the reason I came. I am the Savior. I will save you. And the realization that that happened to you is the assurance that you have, verse 3. If he gave you true knowledge of him, you putting your faith in him, you having the same kind of faith Peter had in verse 1, that gives you assurance. Oh, God, you didn't bring me this far to abandon me in the desert. No. By your divine power, I have everything pertaining to life and godliness. I could lose a job. I could get cancer. A loved one could die. It could crush me. It could hurt me. It could affect my thinking. It could cause all kinds of human emotion. It will. But even in those eventualities, I can't cop out. I have verse 3 because I have the faith of verse 1. You see it? That's when I have to say, Oh God, by divine power, give me what I need now 
and that pertains to living a godly life in the midst of my despair and hopelessness and all. Is it possible to, in a sense, be crushed and also have joy? Yeah! The apostles speak about this. So I'm not talking about putting on a happy face, some false kind of altered state of consciousness. I'm talking about being crushed, and yet there's the experience of joy anyway, which says, somehow, I know by divine power, he'll pull me through, he'll pull me out, he'll see me through, he'll bring me home. I'll see my Savior face to face one day. How do I know? Because he enabled my faith in him to begin with. He called me to himself by his glory and excellence. That's the assurance. He'll give me all things I need, even through depression, even through anxiety, even through grief, even through affliction of all kinds. I have at that very moment everything I need. And that pertains to life and godliness. I don't have it inherently. I have it as a gift given when the Savior took up his abode in my life. You see it? So the Christian who says, yeah, I know I did what I did. I had the affair. I'm only human. No. You chose to do what you did. I could too. Don't misunderstand. I'm not talking down at anyone. I'm just saying when we sin, call it what it is. We sin. But it's not necessary. It's not obligatory. I am obligated to the truth of verse 3. I'm obligated to receive divine power at the most tempting and lowest of times so that I can have everything pertaining to life and godliness. No more copping out. No more excuse. I mean, we're seeing it all the time. Nobody is perfect. I made a mistake. I made a... You had a dozen stinking clandestine affairs. It's not a mistake. You spat in the face of the morally excellent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You done got caught. You didn't repent. You got caught. It's me too. And it's you too. Apart from the kind of faith that gave us an experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus and apart from divine enablement to live life on a different plane. I don't have to do what I have previously chosen to do because I have divine power. Now there's more to it than this. And next week, if the Lord has not yet returned, you realize he's coming again. Yeah. So I'm not being flippant when I say that. If the Lord has not yet returned and we're still here, then next week we'll do verse 4. And feel free to read on ahead. It's really good. So Lord willing, we'll do... uh, Chuck, what my plan is, but we'll see, is maybe to get through verse 11 because it's like a whole paragraph deal. But um, thank you for not holding me to it. (laughs) We'll see. I just get caught up. Don't you think... Listen, you don't want to speed read the Bible. You know what you ought to do? I'll tell you what you ought to do today. Um, Take three words, grace and peace, and just chew on it like crazy. Just by asking, what is grace? What is peace? 
Does peace come before grace? Does grace come before peace? Can you have one without the... Just chew on it. Just, just, just go feast on it. You're going to come up with stuff. God will bring things to mind. It's really, really cool. Otherwise, you're going to be thinking about who our new mayor is. I'm telling you, it's going to bring you down. <clears throat> just when you think you can't get any crazier. Okay. But that was not a political statement at all. There's a moral statement there. Thank you. Charlie told me to say that. We should bow. Lord Jesus, I'll tell you why we're here today. Foggy, damp, cold. Because you've captivated our hearts, so we've come as worshipers. That's an evidence (laughs) that you're in our lives. And with that evidence... We have assurance of verse 3. Unsaved people don't do the things we do. We don't sing your praises. We don't study your word. We don't sacrificially serve one another. We don't go to church. (laughs) We do all those things because you're the author and perfecter of our faith. And we have, by your grace, knowledge of you as Savior. So if you've wrought all those changes in our lives... Surely, surely, verse 3 is true as well. Divine power so that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Thank you very, very much. Not only for leading us on the journey, but for equipping us in the journey. We're going to get to the promised land. It's your doing. You're not going to lose your hold of us, even at our weakest moment. Thank you for that assurance, Lord Jesus. And we thank you so much for coming. We love the essence of Christmas. It reminds us of Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are that very God and Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. See you, folks.